O give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, sing to him, sing praises to him, tell of all his wondrous works, glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice, seek the Lord and his strength, seek his presence continually. Remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles and the judgments he uttered. Those are the first five verses of Psalm 105, and the first 22 verses of that psalm are the psalm appointed for today, Friday, April the 23rd, 2021. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm John Green, and I'm your host. Thanks for being with us today. We're continuing in Daniel, but we've changed the epistles. We finished the first uh, epistle of John, and now we're in Second John, but we're still in the Gospel of Luke <clears throat> this year during the Easter season. So... In Daniel today, in this Daniel 6, 1 to 15, there's a new king, right? So we've already lost Nebuchadnezzar, and we've already lost his son as well. <clears throat> so now we have a new king, because the, the Belshazzar, who took his father Nebuchadnezzar's place, remember, he lost the kingdom, because he failed or refused to humble himself before the Lord. And so now we have not only a new king, but a new kingdom, now, it's the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians who took over uh, after the death of Belshazzar. And so now what we have is King Darius. Uh, and Darius is seeing the, the uh, ability of Daniel. And he has decided there's a way that he's going to set up his kingdom. It's going to be different from the way that Babylon was administered. And so there are going to be 120 satraps. And so it's essentially counties, if you want to look at it that way. And so you've got all these places that where there's somebody who represents the king over them and over them there are three other high officials who oversee the 120 satraps and so to these the satraps all had to give account so that the king might suffer no loss in other words they were overseeing that part of the kingdom for in two ways they were overseeing it financially but they were also overseeing it from a governmental standpoint to make sure that they all remained loyal to the king. So Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials in the satrap because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king planned to set him over the entire kingdom. And then the high officials in the satrap sought to find a ground for a complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful, and no error or fault was found in him. So they said, well, we've got to figure out a way to, to get Daniel taken down off the high horse, off the pedestal that, that the king has him on. So we're not going to find anything about him with respect to his job or to his faithfulness to the king. And that's a great thing to say because he's serving a foreign king, a foreign king who, who is holding his people back from going back to their their rightful home in the promised land and so so Daniel is faithfully serving this pagan king and it's a witness to the king that he does that and that's the way that we're supposed to discharge our responsibilities with respect to to whoever we work for or to the government that we serve and that is we're supposed to do it faithfully we're supposed to do it with an excellent spirit and that itself becomes a witness then to those above us in the in the, in the way that, that the world works, even though they're not above us in any real way, because we're, we're, it's the brotherhood of humanity. They may have a higher position than we do, but we're supposed to serve them faithfully, 
no matter what. As long as, as we are under their authority, then we serve as those who are faithful to that authority. And so the, they figured out finally a way to get around this, and they go to Darius the king. And apparently it's easy to fool a king because you see it all through the scriptures where where kings are induced to do something um, because they're flattered. And so they come and they say, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors, the governors are all agreed. The king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days, except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and give the, sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. You know, it's good to question people's motives, and the king here doesn't do that because he's flattered. Everything about this is, is designed for flattery, to say nobody should bow down to anyone but you. We, we think so highly of you that for the next 30 days, you ought to be counted as the supreme head of everything. And so he did. And then Daniel, it's, it, we, what it says is when Daniel knew the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber towards, open toward Jerusalem. And he got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks to God <clears throat> as he had done previously. So it's not like he's doing this in defiance of the edict. It's his normal practice to do this. But he knows that it's against the edicts. And then these men came and found him there. And then they went back and reported this to the king. They don't tell the king who's guilty. They just say there's somebody there. And he says, yes, the thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. So the king bound himself with this law because it, it, it's part of the culture that once a thing is signed into law in this way, then it can't be revoked, even by the king. And so they then come and say, it's Daniel. Daniel's the one. He pays no attention to you, king, or the injunction um, you've signed, but makes his petition three times a day. And the king wanted to get Daniel out of this. He wanted to find a way out so that Daniel didn't have to be thrown into the lion's den. And it says he labored until the sun went down to rescue him. And then the men came, came by agreement to the king and said, No, O king, it's a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. So there's no way out. You're going to have to enforce this penalty that you yourself put into place. But then the, the way the law of the Medes and Persians works is you're bound by the law, whether you like the law or not. Even the king can't get around that law. And so he's stuck having to do what he decided to do it because he was flattered so you see this this idiocy of flatteracy and, and how it flattery i mean and how it works and you know that you know it in your own life uh, and you know it whether it's been done to you or whether you've used it to get something you want from somebody else is we're all susceptible to it but we need to question people's motives when they come to us that way and and Jesus had the problem with people wanting to flatter him as well. I mean, multiple times in the beginning, certainly, they would come and try and flatter Jesus to, to try and, and get something from him, to figure out who he was and get him on their side, and, and it failed again and again. And, but sometimes they were just overwhelmed by what he did or what he said and couldn't find a way to flatter him. And Jesus continued to do things that broke the law, quote-unquote, because... He was the one who was the lawgiver, actually, in the full embodiment of the intention 
of the law. And so here in Luke 5, 12 to 26, we see it in two different ways. The first thing that's happened is he's one of the cities, and then a man full of leprosy comes to him. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And then Jesus did this thing. And this thing, I remember the first time I ever actually noticed what happened. I knew that I knew that I knew what was going to happen next. And what it is, is he, he stretched out his hand and he touched him saying, I will be clean. Did he have to? Did he have to touch him or could he have just spoken the word and he would have been clean? No, he, he reached out and touched this man who was literally considered to be an untouchable. That if you touched a leper, then you were considered to have be unclean yourself and unable to enter any kind of a synagogue or any other worship space. And you're supposed to stay away from people then because of it. Now, this leprosy is not the same kind of thing. It's not Hansen's disease, which we call modern leprosy. It's a different thing. If you listen to Jewish commentators, rabbinic commentators, what you'll find is, is this is Tazria, and it's only something that applies in the promised land. It's something that, in the law, that's not even in effect until they live in the promised land. And what they believe that it has to do with, actually, is it's that you have sort of whispered and, and gossiped, and you're doing something that's destructive of uh, community, and that, that this is a, a disease that's only possible for them in the land to contract. And it becomes a thing then that, that marks you in a certain kind of a way, and, and there's a, the, the work that has to be done. I mean, you have to be cured of it. It has to go away, and then you have to do something, and that's what Jesus says here is, is he, after the leprosy left him immediately, he charged him to tell no one, but instead go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded for a proof to them. So what is this offering that he's talking about? Well, it's a sin offering. That's the thing about this leprosy that I'm talking about that, that's unique. It's not a, a disease in a sense because it requires a sin offering in order to make atonement for it. So after you're no longer um, leprous, then you make this sin offering in accordance with the law. And so that's the reason they say it's not a disease. It's actually something that happens as a result of sin. And so this man is then commanded to do that. And now the word is getting out around him everywhere. And in spite of the fact that Jesus has touched him, again, we've got this math problem that clean, touching, unclean, makes you unclean. But it's strange because when cleanliness touches uncleanliness and heals it and makes it clean, then is the person who did the touching defiled? And the answer here is clearly no, it's not, but it doesn't matter because it doesn't work that way. That they're, Everybody's watching this and thinking, I, we don't know what to make of it because he should be defiled by the contact with the leprous man, which he didn't have to do. But he did, as an act of love. He reached out and touched that man and cleansed him in this place. And so then people would come and they would try and bring all the people to them, all the people they knew who, who, to be healed. But Jesus would withdraw to these desolate places and pray. And then this other time he is there and he is um, in a home and he's teaching. And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were there. And so everybody has come from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem, and they're there. And Luke tells us the power of the Lord was with him to heal. 
And so some men bring a paralytic, and there's such a crowd there, they were unable to bring him in front of Jesus. They were desperate to get him there, and so they climbed up on the roof and then cut a hole in the roof and lowered him down. And Jesus, the first thing he said, he sees their faith, the men who lowered him down, and he says, man, your sins are forgiven you. The scribes and Pharisees began to question him, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And then Jesus perceived their thoughts, and he answers them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or rise up and walk? So that you know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed. I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And so here we are again in this situation where Jesus is, is proclaiming forgiveness of sins, and he says it's, it's obviously harder to say, rise and walk, than that his sins are forgiven, and so you'll know that I can forgive sins as well. Go ahead, rise up and walk, and the man does. And then he went home glorifying God. And then those who were there, it says, an amazement seized them, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we've seen extraordinary things today. And this is like the first healing of the leper. It's not obvious, unless you know that little thing about leprosy, it's not obvious how this is like that. But here's what I believe about this. I believe there's one reason... Jesus spoke the words of forgiveness to him, and I believe that it's because this particular paralysis was the result of some sort of sin in his life. Jesus didn't say it just to be provocative to the Pharisees and the, and the scribes who were there. There's no way that he did it just to be provocative. No, he did it, I believe, because he knew something. He knew that this paralysis that he's looking at here is a result of some sin the man's committed, and so he proclaims that forgiveness first. I believe it's a precondition for the man receiving the healing is that he needed to know that his sins were forgiven so that he could first know that and then re- receive the healing that Jesus wanted to give him. And so he's not looking to be flattered in any shape, form, or fashion. He's doing these things that are risky, but he's doing them for love's purposes and for the purpose of, of getting to the heart of matters. And so the, these two healings are both related in the sense that they both seem to have something to do with that the the healings necessary has to do with sin. And he makes this man go and and, and do this offering, and the, the leper, he tells to go and do that offering, and it's because he has yet to make the final offering of atonement for sin on the cross. And so while he's still in this world, in before the cross, before the resurrection, then then those laws must be obeyed. And so he commands the man to go and do what's required by the law in order to make atonement and expiation for his sins so that the priest will see what's been done here. And that's part of the reason in this uh, uh, second epistle of John, which is very similar to the first epistle, because he's getting at the same point. And what he says here and what he's arguing here is, is that we've got a problem to the elder, the elect lady, and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth. <clears throat> and so he is, he is reaching out to this church, and we're not sure where this church is. And he says, we have a problem. I ask you, dear lady, not as I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we've had from the beginning, and that's that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you've heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. Just love one another. Because deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. And why is that important? Again and again and again, John's fighting this battle 
with those who would come and deceive the elect and, and try and lead them astray to a false gospel, a gospel that says Jesus didn't come in the flesh and the flesh doesn't actually matter. And that flies in the face of the gospel that we just read. The flesh actually does matter. Jesus heals flesh in both those cases. And if the flesh doesn't matter, then, then why should he heal them? And if sin doesn't actually matter, then why would he do sin things in both in providing forgiveness and then telling the man to go and make the expiation for his sin? John's saying this is important stuff. It's important to recognize that Jesus did indeed come in the flesh, that it wasn't some gimmick or some fake that was pulled on humanity, that it's, that it's real and actual, and that it was real and actual validates your own flesh and validates the importance of our lives, our bodies. And he says that it's really important. In fact, he says that watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son, and it's important enough that John says, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, don't receive him into your house or give him any greeting. Whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. It's important that we get the gospel right. It's important that we get the understanding of the importance of our bodies, our own good creation, as part of the witness of the church and our own witness to humanity.